There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Hi, Brian. Hey, Katie. Hi, everyone out there listening. Gosh, I'd say the State of the Union is shaky. Still, just over a week after this election. I just got finished interviewing Richard Cohen, Brian. We remember we had him on. He is head of the Southern Poverty Law Center, talking about the rise in hate speech and incidents across the country since Election Day. He said there had been 300 at this point, uh, anti-gay, anti-black, anti-women, anti-Jew, anti-Muslim incidents. We're definitely seeing a lot of turmoil across the country. You know, on the left, there have been mass protests in big blue cities like New York, Chicago, and L.A. Um, Online anonymous users have risen on Twitter to sort of condemn both sides. It's It's a very angry time in the country. That's something we really want to start with as we introduce today's guest, Larry Wilmore. Many people know Larry from The Nightly Show. He replaced Stephen Colbert when Stephen replaced David Letterman. Oh, of course, you probably remember him from The Daily Show as well. But he's been behind the scenes of a number of very iconic shows through the years. And we can't wait to hear about that as well. Larry Wilmore, so nice to see you. Thank you so much for coming. My pleasure, Katie. Thank you for having me. First, Larry, we want to talk to you about our good friend Gwen Eiffel. We got some terrible news Uh just really moments ago, and you were looking at your phone and asking me about it when I walked in to the building. And, in fact, it was about Gwen Eiffel Mm -hmm. passing away, which is so shocking. I I had known that she was sick and had been going through treatment Mm -hmm. for cancer, but I did not obviously have any idea that she was this ill. And um, tell me about your experience with when? Well, it's funny. Um, I was always a big fan of hers. You know, I'm one of those, uh, <laughs> I'm one of the people who is in your demo. I love news, you know, and I've loved it since I was a kid. And and I love the fact that Gwen was on PBS, and, you know, and she was one of the faces of PBS. She was so gracious, so intelligent, you know, and the things that she had to say. Um, so I'm just kind of devastated right now. It just kind of hit me just all at once, you know. She, um, I've gotten to know Gwen through the years, just at covering various things. Mm-hmm. And she was quite involved in the Aspen Ideas Festival yes. and was such a, an incredible presence. She was strong and mm-hmm. reasonable and fair-minded yes. and calm. Right. Gwen has just been such a steady force yeah. and an unbelievably kind caring, sweet person, and uh, it's just crushing. Brian, Mm. did you know Gwen at all? I did, actually. I first met her as a nerdy politics geek at the Institute of Politics at Harvard, where she was pretty involved. Um, I was obviously a huge admirer of her work. We stayed in touch a little over the years, and in fact, 
I saw her this summer at one of the conventions, and she gave me a big hug and said, why did they allow you in here, and was very sweet and teased me. And um, she was also a great kind of utility player in journalism. You know, she was a if I remember correctly, she was a writer for the New York Times before right, she— Right, she was. Before she went to television and, and excelled at, at both, which is a rare and hard thing to do. Um, I think she was a universally respected uh, figure and a universally liked figure. Um, so it's, this is a really uh, sad loss for journalism and the country. Yeah, Well, um, our thoughts and prayers are with her family and all her colleagues at PBS. And, uh, you know, I think we can only feel grateful for the contributions that she made. Anyway, let's move on to something more cheerful or not. (laughs) (laughs) Larry, um, you know, it's been a it's been a very um, gosh, I don't know. strange and unsettling week in American life. Yes. And I think the division is so raw and and I think more palpable than ever Mm -hmm. in the aftermath of this campaign and in the election of Donald Trump as our next president. Um, Let's go back to election night. Mm -hmm. Were you shocked? What did you think going into the evening? Well, yeah. I definitely was shocked. Um, you know, I kind of watched election night kind of like a sporting event, you know. Um, I'm looking at it as two sides going against each other because really, there's really a third side. I mean, there was a chance of Ross Perot doing something in 92, but that was the last time anybody really might do something interesting, you know. So I, like everyone, was interested to see how close Trump would make it. That's how much I believe that you know, it was a fate to complete that Hillary would be the next president, you know. Um, and watching Florida, I was, like, very fascinated by the returns in Florida. Uh, it's something that John King CNN does well is he really goes into all the counties and how the right. buildings are coming through the counties with his magic board. Right. I always make fun of that magic board because CNN always stays, you know, cable entertainment news, you know. <laughs> C-E-N is what I call it. But, uh, but. I'm so happy he had that magic wall because you really you can really in real time understand what's going on. And in real time, you could see how those counties were overwhelmingly coming out, those red counties for Trump. When that happened, I thought, OK, anything can happen tonight. Anything. So Florida was your big yes. key that all bets were off. Yes. And I was going around all the networks and just watching reactions and. Fox News, funny, they started off really sad. (laughs) (laughs) It was kind of interesting. And the other networks, it was kind of this, it was almost a smugness, especially when you look at it now, you know. To your point, Larry, Florida really was the canary in the coal mine. And it was a microcosm of how the election unfolded in so many ways across the country. Mm -hmm. You had Hillary doing what she was supposed to do in the Democratic parts of the state, right? Uh, maybe turnout was a little off of where Obama was four years ago, but in more rural parts of Florida, where right. she was expected to lose by twenty points, she was losing by thirty and thirty-five points. Yes, and with enormous turnout among Trump supporters, and That's so that right. was shocking for a lot of us who just Hil- smugly assumed, uh, based on the data, that she was going to prevail. Yes, Hillary hadn't counted on white being the new black. She had that down to them, and that's what it showed us. I mean, I remember Broward County, they were waiting on it, and you thought this gush of, you know, black votes was going to come in, and they were like, okay, that's it. And I'm like, that's it? That's the Okay. All right, Florida. Well, why, mm-hmm. you know, gosh, there's so much to unpack here. Yes. Um, when was the moment that you all felt like party over, game over, mic drop, it's over? Pennsylvania was the one for me. Because that's been untouchable for so long, you know. What about for you, Brian? When was that moment you thought it, that it's over? Well, for me, it was when it looked likely that she would lose Michigan. That was truly shocking mm-hmm. because Michigan last went for a Republican in 1988 when George H.W. Bush was running. And is it true that Wisconsin had not voted Republican since 1984? Yes, So that was a real shocker, 32 years since Wisconsin supported a Republican for president. And that was during Ronald Reagan's 49-state sweep. 
Let's talk about sort of the white working class voters. Mm -hmm. You know, someone was talking to me yesterday and saying, you know, you don't realize how patronizing and and superior it sounds to always refer to this voting block as non-college educated, Mm -hmm. blue collar, working class, et cetera, that that sort of in and of itself sets up this us against them mentality Mm -hmm. of the quote unquote more educated Americans, uh, white collar workers, and, and pits these two groups against each other. What do you guys think of that? I thought that was an interesting observation. Yeah, it is interesting. I think that, I think for me, I feel like the left has had kind of the moral high ground on, on the social issues, but unfortunately it may have given them a smugness on economic issues, you know, and kind of a false sense of being right on all the issues, you know? And so I think they forgot about what, you know, in the 90s were called uh, the uh, Clintons. They were the Bubba Democrats and the the Bubba vote, you know, that were so loyal to Bill Clinton. And I think a lot of people forgot about those Republicans as well, I think, had forgotten about a lot of them because they were so interested in, on the religious side of the of the issues, you know, especially with abortion and some of those issues. And uh, so both sides were so interested in the cultural side. It was Bernie Sanders and, ironically, Trump who talked about these issues in ways that really connected with people. You know, I had said to Brian through the course of this campaign, why isn't Hillary Clinton talking more about income inequality? Why isn't she talking Mm -hmm. more about jobs, about the loss of manufacturing jobs, largely through automation, as we've reminded our listeners here many times? It seems like like such a duh Captain Obvious thing to say. Why Why didn't she do that, in your view? I don't know. Brian, do you have any views on that? Well, Bill Clinton was sort of dismissed with a condescending pat on the head and <laughs> said, well, you know, that, that, that may was have been then. how this it This is worked. now. Yeah, the future of the Democratic Party is this coalition of the ascendant young people, college-educated whites, uh, and minorities. And in fact, depending on how you calculate it, about 40% of the electorate is still white working class people. Uh And to just seed that group and lose by 30 or 40 points in some places makes it very, very hard to win for a Democratic candidate. You basically have to run the table everywhere else. Now, Clinton strategists will tell you that the economic Uh, argument was sort of at the core of her message that in every speech she said an economy that works for everyone, not just those at the top. Um, But but what got media attention was just the the conflict with with Donald Trump. And so you have a lot of people outside the campaign who said, you know, they should have done a lot more. They should have they should have visited some of these places. Hillary Clinton wasn't even in Wisconsin for seven months before Election Day. And of course, within the Clinton campaign, their view was, you know, we reached them through advertising, through other events, and uh-huh. and the press didn't cover her policy ideas and speeches. They just covered us when we bashed Donald Trump. To me, the my biggest frustration with Hillary Clinton, who I, I supported and voted for, was was the empathy quotient. It didn't feel like she had that empathy part of the equation, you know. Whereas Trump, if you look at his rallies. People were there excited because they felt they were heard finally, that somebody heard them and someone was listening. And whether or not you agree with the message, that connection is very powerful. And if you just look at their message itself, just the simple message, Trump, make America great again, right? Very aspirational, very inspirational for people that believe that it's an idea. Hillary, I'm with her. It's or stronger a, together. Yeah, it's more esoteric. I was just going to ask you, Larry, you know, it's so interesting to me as we kind of pick through these mm-hmm. exit polls because they're really kind of a reflection, uh, even a rough one, of, of where the American people are. And, right. and they showed that a majority of voters approved of President Obama's job performance. They mm-hmm. opposed some of Donald Trump's key policy ideas like the wall and mass deportations. Mm-hmm. And and they viewed Hillary Clinton more favorably than Donald Trump. So why do you think, um, even though he lost the popular vote, Trump was able to prevail in this election? Um, I do feel that many times we get the president we deserve and not the president we want or need. And I, I feel a lot of the electorate is more superficial than people give them credit for. And that's not always a bad thing. Sometimes it works out well. 
But I think the toughest hurdle the Clintons were always going to face is coming back to the neighborhood. You know, they're already out of the neighborhood. You're coming back. Wait, you're moving back into this house? We know you already. There's nothing new. America likes a new family. You know, they, as I mean, President Obama said this in 12. He said Americans like that new car smell. That's what he when he was worried about losing Iran. But he's right. People do like that. They they. They like getting to know the new family in the White House. They already know about the Clintons. One of the toughest hurdles that they had to overcome was familiarity. Yeah, fatigue, really. Yes, we know that breeds contempt. (laughs) You know, so, you know, if you just look at cult of personality, we're also in a very narcissistic, you know, reality show age. And boy, there's no other better example of that than Donald Trump. That's the world that we kind of live in. And Trump rode a lot of different waves into the White House, not just one. And the thing about Obama, I think more people approve of Obama than approve of his record as president. I think there's a distinction there. I think more people view him favorably as Barack Obama, you know, singing Al Green and, you know, and being, once again, <laughs> His a cult perf- of personality. Correct. His, he has an amazing personality, much like Reagan. But if you look at his job performance, I think those numbers are lower in terms of people being satisfied with with the actual job that's happened over the past eight years. Also, I think if you look Mm -hmm. at right track, wrong track, Brian and I talked about that, and he said these numbers really don't vacillate that much. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I think if you just look at some of the things that are barometers of how people are doing, you look at heroin addiction, you look at suicide, you look at unemployment, and all those things are disproportionately affecting white men 50 and over. And I think the chickens came home to roost in this election where suddenly they said, this is someone who listens to us and cares about our issues in a way that no other candidate really seemed to. And so you can understand why they said, we're going to make our situations and known and our presence felt in this campaign. Yeah, and it is significant that he didn't just beat Hillary Clinton. He beat the Republican establishment as well. I mean, Trump did beat both sides. You know, he, he was more of an independent candidate running as a Republican. Why do you think that black and Latino voters didn't weren't more enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton? I always predicted there was going to be this enthusiasm gap. You just had to look at the rallies, right? Well, I, I believe it's a false comparison. I think um, you can't compare Hillary Clinton to Barack Obama, who is a historical candidate. You know, we've never had a candidate like that. So there were those numbers for Obama, you're not going to see for anyone else. I guess it's, I was saying an enthusiasm gap between Donald Trump supporters and Hillary Clinton supporters. Oh, I, but I, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that to me is about her messaging. I think it's very uh, clinical. It's very antiseptic. There's nothing inspiring for certain groups to come out and vote for something. They were being more corralled to vote against something. Right. You know, and cynical campaigns to me, I call that a cynical campaign when you're voting against something. Um, to me, are always harder to win than positive campaigns, you know. I also think that, I mean, again, I'm not a campaign expert or a, a political strategist by any stretch, but I've covered enough elections to know that her campaign to me seemed exceedingly cautious, mm-hmm. careful, and controlled. Um, she didn't get out in front of the press. You know, she is actually a very engaging, warm, mm-hmm. funny person. Yes. Because I've covered her since the early 90s when she was first lady. Mm-hmm. But I think there was such a fear of getting her out there. And I think as a result, Donald Trump sucked all the oxygen out of the room. And you never actually felt like you knew her as a person. She seemed, as you said, antiseptic. And the fact of the matter is, anyone who's spent any time with her or knows her a little bit Mm -hmm. or has had a conversation with her or seen her in an unguarded moment, she really isn't like that. Look at her two most effective times as a candidate. Once in 2008, when she cried in New Hampshire or whatever that was, she let down her guard, as I'll call it. And her concession speech for this to me, she was re- she was more revealed as a person rather than presented as a candidate. And, and that's the, well said. Yes, and the thing that Hillary did not do enough of in my mind was reveal herself as a person because there were so many things that were said about her. And you know how how the media can make up who we think someone is. You know, that, all I could think of was they were so concerned about a misstep. Yeah, and that getting focused on and blown out of proportion that they didn't allow her to be herself. 
Well, we're going to take a quick break. Um, Here's some messages from our sponsors and from you all. And we're going to have more with Larry Wilmore, the man, the legend, (laughs) right after this. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. I'm late. I'm late. For a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Last week, we asked you all for your greatest hopes and fears for a Trump presidency. You left us so many great voicemails, and here's a sampling. Hi, Katie. My name is Ellie. I'm calling from Brooklyn, New York. I just wanted to respond. I said, what is your biggest hope or biggest fear about a Trump presidency? Well, one of my biggest hopes is that he'll turn the, that he will turn the economy around, and we'll see more jobs coming back to America. We'll see more economic growth. And we will see just general prosperity. One of my biggest fears, um, well, I have to tell you, I have a lot of friends in the LGBT community, and I'm afraid that him or Governor Pence might roll back the LGBTQ rights, and I really, really don't want to do that, because I know I have a lot of friends that are going to be affected by that. Have a good one. Thanks. Hi, this is Peggy. My hope for the... Trump presidency is that he will prove to be a moderate, someone who will focus on infrastructure and improvements like that. My greatest fear is that he will be an insane autocrat. Thanks. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. Um, My biggest hope for the Trump presidency is that he's able to comprehend the awesome responsibility he has been handed and that he is somehow able to transform himself into a person that can now inspire and lead the country. I'm willing like a lot of people, I think, to give him a chance. So my biggest fear is that he will continue to be petty and vindictive um, and dragging us all into a world of conspiracies and corruption, sort of like the House of Cards. Uh, bye. Hi, Katie. Hi, Brian. Um, my name is Kate. I am in Michigan. I think my biggest hope is that people don't forget the feelings they feel right now following the election, that they stay hungry, they stay motivated, um, and they stay involved. Uh, my biggest fear is that young people like my generation will stop being involved, that they'll feel like they don't have a role or a voice. Thanks, guys. For our next listener question, we'd love to hear from some of our Republican listeners. We know you're out there. What do you think is the future of the GOP? We want to hear your thoughts about Donald Trump, about the party itself, about the establishment wing of the party, about this new kind of GOP ushered in by this era of Donald Trump. So leave us a message at 929-224-4637. Brian will be there to answer all of your calls. How are you sleeping these days, Gianna? Oh, you know, it's been hard. Well, I think I have the answer for you. Casper is a sleep brand that creates perfect mattresses. Number one, Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. 
It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams for a sleep surface that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. It's made in America, and they're sold directly to consumers, eliminating commission-driven inflated prices. How does that sound, Gianna? Not too bad, honestly. And buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. They offer free delivery and free returns with a 100-night at-home trial. So, Gianna, you you really have nothing to lose. Sounds like I could just return it, but I wouldn't. (laughs) And if you don't love it, for whatever reason, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Uh, But what else should I know? Do we have any kind of deal for our listeners? You can get 50 bucks toward any mattress purchase just for listening to this show by visiting casper.com slash Kirk. Exactly, and using the offer code Kirk. Terms and conditions apply. Gianna, I want to tell you about a new and fascinating true crime podcast from Earwolf. It's called Stranglers. Have you ever heard of the Boston Strangler? Yes, but I don't actually know that much. It happened before I was born, I think. Well, 13 gruesome murders happened between 1962 and 64. The city was terrified. Thousands of suspects were questioned. No one was ever convicted. And in this podcast, you hear from the victims and detectives. How do you hear from the victims if they're dead? Anyway, you hear from people close to the case and the investigators still on the job. You'll even hear the voice of an alleged killer whose confession raised more questions than it answered. That's a pretty good tease. You can subscribe to Stranglers in iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And stay tuned at the end of this episode to hear a special sneak preview. Oh, I will. We're back with Larry Wilmore. Gosh, you know, enough about Hillary Clinton and <laughs> Donald Trump. Let's talk about you, Larry. So Yay. you you're, you're, you became very well known uh, on The Daily Show, and then you started hosting your own show on Comedy Central. How did you get into comedy? Larry, how did you get into comedy? <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> I always tell people, I'm one of those people, I didn't really get into comedy. I kind of uh, went into showbiz so I could get comedy out of me, you know. <laughs> Like, yeah, I was lucky there's a thing called showbiz where I could do that. I mean, if I worked at a bank, I'd still be telling jokes. I just wouldn't be getting paid for it and probably wouldn't last that long, you know. So um, I've always looked at showbiz as a way to – comedy is kind of my expression. So whether I'm writing or producing or performing, you know, or whatever it is, I'm getting that comic expression out. So you you worked on all these shows. I know you worked on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Did you know my friend Andy Borowitz? You know, I have a funny story about Andy Borowitz. I love Here's, Andy Borowitz. Great guy. Here's what's very interesting about Andy. So my very first gig, as you will, one of my first gigs, this is in the early 80s, I was on The Facts of Life, and I was a cop for a couple of episodes. It's like really? Yes, it's so oh, bizarre. I'm going to have to dig that up. I know. Up. It's so bizarre. Uh, and my name was Officer Ziakis, okay? So... It was so odd. You were a Greek of yeah. Greek descent. You know, there's a lot of Brother Ziakasis out there that people don't give enough credit for. Right? <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, the person who wrote that episode was Andy Borowitz. I didn't know this. Years later, I was serving on the board of directors, I think, of the Writers Guild at the time. And somebody mentioned Ziakis that they know. I go, Ziakis, that was the name of a character I played. So really, that's a friend of mine, a friend of yours. And this all started unraveling, that this was a friend of Andy Borowitz, who somehow, like he knew Andy Borowitz, and somehow we got him on the phone, and I talked to Ziakis or something like that. And it was this weird connection that was made. And I got to meet Andy after that, and we talked about it. But when I worked on Fresh Prince, he was already gone. Oh, he was gone. Yeah, Does we, he cre- didn't he create the Fresh Prince? He and, and Susan created Fresh Prince along with, I think, Benny Medina. Who I think it was based on something like that. And you yeah. also worked uh, uh, on Liv- in Living Color. Is it yes. in Living Color? In Just Living Liv- Color. Yeah, in Living, Living Color. Living Color is the band. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It was in Living That's Color, right. yes. which is another show I loved. Oh, I have such you. a crush on the Wayne Brothers. They're still around. Oh Katie, my there's still God. something that can be done about that. I, crush. I like. I think it's it's, it's um, Damon. Damien is on, uh, he's on Lethal Weapon right now. I think is I'm he fine. the tall, skinny one? That's the one they're I like. They're all kind of the tall, skinny ones. <laughs> yeah, the, he's so hot. The Wayans family, they're the first ones to experiment with cloning. They're the first ones to do it successfully, actually. And uh, they just put different names on it. Same body, same jokes, you know, same <laughs> So funny. did you write for In Living Color? Yes, I did. You weren't I, on it. No, well, no, I did a couple of guest spots, but I was a stand-up and an actor before that point, And I realized that I wanted to get into writing and producing to kind of guide my own career because I, you know, I just couldn't get the type of auditions that I wanted. So I had done like years of stand-up before that. And, and Living Color was my first break as a writer. 
And uh, it was such an amazing show. I mean, Jim Carrey came out of there. Jim, I know. Jamie Foxx won an Oscar. You know, J-Lo was She was it. a dancer. She yes. was a fly girl exactly. on that show. I, we're dating ourselves, Larry. I know. Well, I'm dating me. You know. <laughs> Never dated any of the fly girls, though, unfortunately. <laughs> much to your um, dismay. I know. Yeah. So that, that must have been so much fun to work on that show. Well, it was fun, but it was really tough, too. I tell people it was the worst of times. It was the worst of times as a, as a writer. Because <laughs> you had to work till like, 5, 6 in the morning. You were exhausted exhausted all the time. But you learned everything you wanted to learn about comedy writing on that job. So. And then you worked for the Bernie Mac show? Well, I created the Bernie Mac show. Oh, you created yes. it. Yes, a little bit of a, bit of a writer's <laughs> distinction there. Well, the first show I created was called The uh, PJs. It was a show with Eddie Murphy. It was an animated show. And then after that, I did The uh, Bernie Mac show. And Bernie Mac show kind of put me on the map as a as a creator of shows and that type of thing. And um you know, we won a lot of awards. I won a Peabody, actually. Wow. I know. Muscle, muscle. I know. It's double muscle on that one. <laughs> yeah. It's then, great. Then you ended up working on the John Stewart, obviously, on The Daily now, Show. Now, before that, now before that. Oh, I good. Actually, Tell I me actually, more. I actually ran Whoopi Goldberg show in New York. And you actually came by the set once, and uh, we actually were like, oh, my goodness, it's Katie Couric's coming by. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, it's true. Wait, so which show? I don't show? even know if you remember that. It was uh, Whoopi Goldberg had a show for NBC. Back in uh, 2003. Wow. Yeah. So did you create that show? Uh, a friend of mine did, but I went in to run it. Um, after that, I went to the office uh, and helped launch that with Greg Daniels. And I was there for the first couple of seasons. And I played a part called uh, Mr. Brown. It was the Diversity Day episode. It was really funny. Steve Carell is hilarious in that. And it's funny. Then I, I thought, well, now's the time to get back into performing. And it was then that The Daily Show came about, and I went to do that. And you know, and the rest there. is history, yeah. as they say. How I much fun so. was it working on The Daily Show, Larry? It was so much fun. When I started, John Oliver had just started, Asif Mambi, uh, John Hodgman. Uh, there was a whole mess of us who, who were just coming in. And uh, it was fun because we were trying to figure out who we are and all that kind of stuff. I know I was, you know, and it was, it was really, really a lot of fun. Yeah. How were they able to, to make it— such a fun place to work. Well, here's the thing. It's funny. There's a, a book that's coming out right now about uh, the uh, Daily Show in the early days, and it wasn't always like happy, happy family. John, <laughs> John had he took a few years to really make that show his own. It was a different show before he came around, and and John really saw the way that he wanted to make it, and the people who were there were like, I don't think so. We kind of do it like that. So there was a lot of tension for a few years there, and as the personnel shifted and the show shifted. It kind of turned into what we know it as now, but that was kind of a birthing process that wasn't always fun for everyone, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but 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 towards the end, I mean, I guess, or yeah. through the years, how long was The Daily Show even on? I should know this. I think it was created in 96, I think. Wow. So it's been 21 years. Gosh, Craig Kilborn think- was on at the outset, and he was replaced by Jon Stewart, if I remember correctly. So The Daily Show started at around the time of Fox News and MSNBC, ironically. Yeah. When mm. I, I, I meant to ask you, how do you, you think if how do you think if at all this campaign would have been different had John Stewart still been in that chair? I know, people love to think that <laughs> that we actually can make a difference at the ballot box. I don't know if that's true. I think John would probably would disagree with you vehemently that he would have made any difference at the ballot box because uh, if that were the case, you know then all those midterms would have turned out differently, I think. Let me ask you about the nightly show. Sure. You know, tell me what that experience was like for Mm -hmm. you, um, some of the pressures you felt. Mm -hmm. I did a daily syndicated talk show. Yes. So in some ways, I think I'm going to feel your pain, Larry, because— We can only relate to each other. No one else can relate to it. It's really, really hard, I think, to do— a super high-quality daily show. And right. um, I'm just curious, what were some of the challenges you found? Well, it was, there was a lot of pressure from a lot of different way areas, which I really don't mind. I've worked under pressure for a long time, and I feel like sometimes I do my best work under there, but it is very difficult. And I had the pressure of following Stephen Colbert, who was very beloved in the time slot. So I had time slot pressure. I had pressure of uh, making a show that works, you know, which— I don't yeah, care. There's that. Yes, yeah. I don't care where you're at. That's pressure, right? And also, the what was interesting about our show, there were two components to it. There was a a discussion component that takes a certain amount of preparation. And in the beginning, we had four guests on every night, which is crazy, and that takes preparation for that discussion. Oh my gosh, yes. But before that, there was an edit comic editorial 
that also takes brain power every day. How are you going to distill your thoughts about what just happened every single day? It's like having to write a funny <laughs> column yeah, every day and study and know how you're going to relate and interact with all your guests. That's exactly right. That's so I, a lot of work, Larry. Why the hell do you want to do I that? Know. that? I didn't know what I was awful. getting into. It was <laughs> My head was ready to explode in the first three months. I really didn't know how I was going to continue that. It, it was just too much. And we had to pare the show down a bit where we would have a couple of our regulars and one guest and simplify it a bit. And we, we, we had, the show became more about the comedy and the, that part of it and less about the discussion. But that happens more in the, in the development of a show, you know. Mm-hmm. But I did enjoy doing both parts of those yeah. shows. I really enjoyed it a lot. Do you wish you could have done it weekly? And, oh, you know, definitely. like you look at John Oliver and, you know, he did a brilliant show. Yeah, I this give him week. shit all the time about <laughs> Oh, ooh, I worked so hard. I got one show I got to do, and I'm, now I'm off to February. Oh, poor little kid. <laughs> but I bet if you had had that kind of pace sure. for your show, mm-hmm. um, you could have really probably taken these big issues, had had a lot of fun with your mm-hmm. comedy, because the daily grind must it's, have been the pits. It is tough, although I will say you do get to comment on a lot of things you probably wouldn't be able to comment on otherwise. You right. know? So they have a frustration that they don't get to comment on everything because, once again, now they're reduced to that 23 minutes weekly. Right. So And they usually do a single topic. Exactly. So if you think about it in a month, they've only weighed in on four separate things. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a month, I've done 20 shows, you know, or, yeah. or 25, how, how long that month happens to be. So, you know, you do get to weigh in on more things. You get to have more targets you can throw at, but then you still have to produce that too. So there are pros and cons. Yeah, and I it. think also, you know, for people who watch regularly, they like sort of seeing you every night. People do. It you becomes know? a habit. I still get on Twitter, people are still like, Larry, we miss you so much. And what they really miss is that they were watching us every night. Right. You, it, know, you, you were habit forming, yes, Larry. Yes, that's right. Hey, there you go. Yeah. I'm like I'm like crack. Were, yeah. were, were, <laughs> were, you, were you sorry? Were you sorry it came to an end? Absolutely, of course, especially for everyone that worked there. But I'm a move on type of person in showbiz because I have to, you know, and I've always, I always get different ideas, you know, and I'm always working on different projects. I have a project at HBO right now. I know. Let's Insecure. talk about your yeah. projects because, I mean, you're doing such cool things. Oh, and you're, first of all, I love uh, Issa Rae. Oh, she's so great. She was she's... on my my talk show. Oh, was she? Oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, she was kind yeah. of a, a uh, online presence yes. and really funny. Yeah. And so, yes. In she's fact, amazing. Um, I kind of introduced her to the country. Uh, that's I'm great. kidding. But we, I really we do thank love you her. For that. You're expecting <laughs> told... a little uh, residual check <laughs> every month. Exactly. I, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But <laughs> she's got a show on HBO called yes. Insecure. Insecure. And, and are you the executive producer of Well, that? I co-created it with her. I was in a transition period just trying to figure things out. Uh, This is three years ago. And my managers asked me if I wanted to meet her. She had just tried to do something at ABC with Shonda, and it didn't quite work out. But Issa had already done— Oh, I called called Issa. Issa. I'm sorry, Issa. Yeah. um, So, But uh, she had done uh, Misadventures of uh, of an Awkward Black Girl. She'll probably talk to you about that. Right. That's what she was was on for. Yes. It was hilarious. And I saw that, and I thought, oh, my God, who is this person? I thought, this is fantastic. I love the point of view. I love the style of it. And her acting, though, was a revelation to me. As someone who's produced for years, I thought the camera was really discovering her— you know, in a way that was revelatory. I, I love that about her, you know. So I wanted to collaborate with her, and I was. they asked if I wanted to supervise it, but I said, Issa, you want to just ride together? She was like, yeah, let's do it. And so so did, did the two of you, do you write yes. it together? Or, yeah, you write it together? Well, we don't write the series together. We, we created the pilot together. Mm-hmm. So we created that together. And then the HBO process is kind of long, so there were several rewrites, and they were kind of in a holding pattern. And I decided to go help launch Blackish at the time, which is on ABC. So I worked with Kenya Bears and helped to launch that show, working on the pilot with him. You're like Mr. Starmaker, <laughs> Larry. Know, so. That's what it seems like now. <laughs> yeah, but it didn't work for me, Kenya. No. Yeah. Well, but he's I, like I Cecil mean, B. DeMille, you know. Is it, is it, do you, do you, I mean, is there something, which do you prefer, being in front of the camera, behind the camera, a little both? Mm-hmm. A little bit of both. Um, I really enjoy the creative process, you know, and figuring it out making it work. I love 
introducing like the world to something is how I view it. And like introducing the world to Issa, I was so excited about that, you know, or even when I did the Bernie Mac show, I said, I can't wait for people to see Bernie and see him do this stuff. I was so excited about it. I'm always a little more shy about myself. I think I'm a little more gun shy about me kind of being out there. So I'm less interested in, I call it hoggy, being hoggy, you know, me being in front of the camera and all that. I feel like I do it if I, it's what I need to do, but it's not the first thing that I feel like I, I need to do or have to do. But you're you having know? fun right now, it sounds I'm like. I'm having a lot of fun. Are you doing stand-up? Because you did some stand-up. I did. I did it for years and years, you know. And uh, I did a couple of election specials in 2012 for Showtime called uh, Larry Wilmer's Race, Religion, and Sex in Utah was the first one. <laughs> and then Race, Religion, and Sex in Florida. And it was kind of a town hall in different parts of the country. And I really enjoyed doing that. And the first part was a little stand-up-y and then— discussion and that kind of thing. So, Well, that's a good segue to coming back to where we are as a country, yes. Larry. Um, I think we need one of those specials just about now. Um, well, I, I may be doing some of that. Um, really? Yeah, some of that again. So, Well, do one a, in New York, a little please, teaser. so I can come. I, would you be on it if I did it? No. <laughs> I don't want to be on it. I just want to be in the audience. No. What? No. I love to hear from you. I'm not very Hold funny. Hold on a second. And no, I'm Katie, you don't shy. understand. America shy, has Mary. never fallen out of love with you. <laughs> they still love you. What are you talking about shy? You're doing, you look, what is all these shy people? <laughs> I don't know. I just, I don't know. I, America I, will I never be out anxiety. of love with Katie Kirk. I'm saying it right now. I'm well, right I don't now. know. Call yeah. my agent, Larry, and we'll discuss all it. Right, but anyway, okay. but but what are we going to do as a country? You know, here we've got Steve. Bannon, who from mm-hmm. Breitbart News as yes. the chief strategist, and that's really upsetting to a lot of people yes. because of the whole rise of the mm-hmm. alt right and some of the incredibly inflammatory stuff right. that's been on Breitbart News. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Cheese, uh, how I don't even know. I don't even know where to begin. What is it about this election? Mm. I can't stop talking about yeah. it, thinking about it. At some point, am I going to move on? Mm, not for a while. I don't think so. I don't think so. This is a big one. How can we, I don't know, just sort of tamp down the anger and hate on both sides? Mm-hmm. I know I sound like Rodney King, can't we all just get along? But, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just, I'm I'm worried about the country. Sure. Um, I'm not as worried, but I also, once again, my contrary nature— I'm not as concerned about people expressing their emotions. Maybe I'm just sort of a a wuss and I just start getting upset about it. I I find it's okay to be upset, you know, and I think it's necessary for us to express those feelings. Should I lie down, Larry? No, it's okay. (laughs) But I think through through people's outrage sometimes, and look, the— the uh, people on the right who voted for Trump expressed their outrage in a certain way, and people have heard it, and now it must be dealt with. And so people need to express how they feel about something so it can be dealt with, so we can do something about it and move on. And Larry, how much do you mm -hmm. see those divisions breaking down along racial lines? I mean, I was really Mm -hmm. struck when Skip Gates, who's a noted uh, African-American professor said mm-hmm. uh, Trump represents a backlash against the progress black people have made since 1965, which, of yeah. course, was the year of the Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. Van Jones on CNN said that Trump represents a white lash, yeah. a reaction against Obama and changing mm-hmm. demographics by white people. Do right. you see it in that kind of stark racial oh, completely. way? I mean, look, in August of 2015, I predicted that Trump would win to my staff, and they all laughed at me. And uh, we called our coverage of it Blacklash 2016, the unblackening, was how we said it, you know, that that there is an unblackening that's happening. And to me, I just wrote an article for The New Yorker about this, which people can read right now, where I, I called Trump um, the birther of a nation. And uh, I— That was clever. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, but I linked a lot— a lot of his um, delegitimization of the president back to that film and the fact that that film was legitimately screened in the White House like just 100 Woodrow years Wilson. ago. Correct. And said history was just written with lightning, you know. And and he, he, the president of the United States legitimized the delegitimization of the black male. That happened in the White House. Trump trying to un-Americanize Barack Obama, to me, is that same thing, you know, trying— to make him delegitimate. And that's why Obama was very upset about it himself. You can see on his face when that stuff was happening. And he enjoyed the takedown of Trump at that White House Correspondence Center. You could see how much he enjoyed that. 
you know, and I think was, he enjoyed it a little too much I because so too, I, yeah. I, you know, you look at that video in 2011 and you think, was that the moment mm-hmm. Donald Trump said, yeah, well, just you wait. And, and a lot of people who know him, and we discussed this on our last podcast, thought that that speech really catalyzed this sense for him that he had to show not just Obama, but the whole establishment that mocked him. Well, the one thing, you know, you talked earlier in our conversation about messaging. And I think Donald Trump was incredibly effective Mm -hmm. at messaging, staying on message, being very disciplined. It almost became a mantra, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it was lock her up, crooked Hillary. I think there's a reason he had those hashtags, Mm -hmm. you know, what did he, little little Marco Marco and, you know, what did he say about Jeb Bush? Low energy. energy. You know, know, and these things that he repeated again Mm -hmm. and again and again. Do you think sometimes it's because he is, you know, reflecting his own vulnerabilities? You know, oftentimes— Well, I, I, I don't know if I agree. We're getting very shrinky here. No, but <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you why I disagree with, with that assessment, because he's right, you know. So it's not his thing. He was right about Jeb Bush. That's why Jeb was so upset about it. Little Marco did upset Marco Rubio. It did make him mad. You know, lying Ted did upset Ted Cruz. You he know, really knew he and knew knows the right how thing to get to, people yes. under get under people's That's skin. That's exactly right. And the well, one and not, thing that buried Hillary more than anything else was crooked Hillary. And right before the election, the FBI comes down and says, "Well, we're still looking into this." Up, oh, he's right, crooked Hillary. And not because necessarily these labels are accurate. I mean, I have a friend who was very yeah, close to Jeb. Marco isn't that little. <laughs> he actually is. Well, and a friend who worked for Jeb Bush Marco said thinks he if, is. if Trump mm-hmm. had Jeb Bush's schedule for a week, he'd be in the hospital. What he meant by low energy was not willing to say the kind of incendiary stuff, mm-hmm. not willing to kind of cross right. the lines that Trump was able to cross. And, I think and he meant boring, reason, Brian. I disagree. I think he just meant he was well. Maybe that you're we're saying the same things that he was. He was just boring because Duh. he wasn't. I, I think we're actually agreeing because he wasn't able to say the exciting stuff that Jeb just didn't believe in or thought was offensive. So, in closing, Larry, I, I could talk to you all day. So, yes! uh, this has been really fun. Thank you so much oh, for doing for this. Me. What um, are your greatest hopes and fears for a Trump presidency? That's the same question we've asked our listeners. So, wow, you give me the oxymorons of oxymorons. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, it's a really tough one because. The things that he wants to accomplish, I don't want him to accomplish, you know. Um, I I don't think we need to build a wall or ban Muslims or those types of things. And, you know, the opposition is not in power right now, you know. They have a firm grasp on all the levers of government right now. So I'm just hoping that someone with some sense in there and and with the more of an eye on, you know— <laughs> on the country, I guess, uh, can talk some sense into Trump. I'm concerned that he hired Steve Bannon as the person in his ear. That really concerns me, you know. I think Ryan Spreebus, as we said, is is very reasonable. I, I'd rather have Kellyanne Conway. I think she was great. Um, her Her really crowning Trump which I think it was, she was indispensable in that campaign. She's very talented. When they hired Kellyanne, yes. I thought, wow, that that's a really smart I thought it was hire. smart, too. Yeah, I thought it was really smart. Smartest thing they probably ever did. I, I what do you be, think she's going to do? Have they talked about a job oh, for her? I'm sure she'll work in there. They would be she stupid to let her go. She said that she has yeah. been offered a job in the White House, although she won't say what it, what it is. Maybe by the time the show comes out, we'll know. How big of a Fox yeah. News star would she be right now? Yeah, oh, for <laughs> yeah. sure. Although Fox is having its own identity crisis, oh, yeah. I that's think. That's a whole different discussion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brian, yeah. what are your biggest uh, hopes and fears for a Trump presidency? Uh, my biggest hope is that he can shake up an inefficient, bureaucratic federal government and maybe deliver better customer service for the American people. Um, my greatest fear is that he's as divisive in office as he was during the campaign, and half of the American people feel not just alienated from the president, but actively scorned and disrespected by the president. And I think that would be a profoundly unhealthy thing for the country. Maybe he can come up with some compromises that will 
that will address some of the issues that were so motivating for mm-hmm. people at the polls, but do so in a more incrementalist way or in a way that isn't sort of, you know, maybe he can use, what's the expression instead of a, a meat cleaver? Mm-hmm. He can use, uh, I don't know. What would you say, Scal- you guys? A scalpel, a, a scalpel instead, um, and be be and perform the surgery that I think most people agree needs to be done mm-hmm. with with a little more care and a little more compassion. You're talking about a man who puts his name on places in large gold letters to do something subtly and precisely. A girl can dream, can't she? (laughs) Larry, thank you so much for coming. It was really fun to talk to you. And congratulations on all your success and continued success. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Brian. Thank you so much for coming on. And as Katie mentioned, for our next listener question, we would love to hear from our conservative listeners. What do you think the future of the Republican Party is? We're curious to hear your thoughts about the party itself, the division between the alt-right and the establishment wing. How can the party appeal to Latinos and African-Americans? Where does it go from here? So leave us a message at 929-224-4637. Thanks, as always, to Gianna Palmer for producing the show and Jared O'Connell for engineering and mixing it. Thanks to Sam uh, for engineering from L.A. Thanks to Mark Phillips for our fantastic theme music. And remember, you can always email us at comments at currickpodcast.com. You can find Katie and me on social media. I'm at Goldsmith B on Twitter, Katie's at Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram, and Katie.Couric on Snapchat. Best of all, you can rate and review us on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it if you would let us know what you think of the show. Don't forget to subscribe to. We'll uh, talk to you next time. This is you all- take the good, yes, you take the right. bad. <laughs> Da, 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 the facts of life. I, that's amazing that you know that. Uh, I could do Mrs. Garrett. Oh, Mrs. Mrs. Garrett. She kind of sounded like that. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm late. I'm late. Three very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.